through expanded states of consciousness, we come to feel and recognize what it means to be free. And the best way to sort of replicate that state of feeling over a long period of time is by pursuing a path of entrepreneurship. Welcome to Woke and Wired, a new conversation about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. We are here to shift the paradigm of business and marketing and social media in this digital age of infinite possibility and bridge our inner technology, our intuition with outer technology through rituals, personal development tools, conscious business practices, spiritual tools, and the magical tool of social media. I am your host, Xenia, storyteller, conscious social media teacher, speaker, and a multidimensional traveler. Welcome to the new paradigm. Welcome back to Woken Wired. I am your host, Xenia, and October is a special month at Woken Wired for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Conscious Social Media Program launches on October 12th, and I have the most incredible group of people coming together, both people who have already done the program and want to go deeper this time, and also people who have been listening to the podcast for a while and resonating with this work and finally are taking the leap and pulling the trigger. Maybe you're one of them. If you are listening to the previous episodes, 120 and 121, where I go deeper into what the program is, what you might expect from it. And there's a question that's been coming up a lot, which is how much strategy is it actually? And how much inner work? And it's a equal combination of inner work, outer smart strategy, and also community and support. And there's one thing that I'm really called to share with you. And it's that In my experience, whenever I've taken online programs or hired coaches, it was barely ever that I got exactly what I thought I wanted to work on and take to the next level, but it's always something else, some blind spot or perhaps even a more expanded version of my vision for myself that would arise as a result of taking that leap. So whether you're going to join this program or maybe you are about to join a course to learn Akashic Records or how to learn to be a meditation teacher, or maybe you're going to learn microdosing, whatever it is, I just invite you to go in with an open mind. Yes, have an intention, but also trust that there are miracles that unfold when we follow those intuitive hits and take action into what feels aligned and like the next right step on our journey. You can learn more about the Conscious Social Media Program on ConsciousSocialMediaMethod.com. I am also linking to it in the show notes. We start October 12, 2020. And the second reason why this month feels so special is because I was intuitively guided to make it a month of psychedelics. This podcast is about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. And in my experience, psychedelics have played a massive role in my own journey. And I've been hesitant in sharing it publicly, but it kept knocking on my door and I knew October is the right time. And it just so happens that I have a list of incredible guests lined up who are true experts and thought leaders in the topic of expanded consciousness and psychedelic 
from microdosing to combo medicine to ibogaine. And whether you are a supporter or someone who is interested in this topic or not, there will be so much to learn in these conversations. And I also want to say that whether you partake in any of the experiences we're talking about in a safe and legal way or not, it's completely up to you. There's no right way to do it. And this series is not so much to get you inspired to take action in this, but more so to show different pathways that lead us humans to those states of expanded consciousness. And it can be meditation. It can be spending time in nature. It can be ecstatic dance. It can be cacao. It can be so many things that don't involve psychedelics. That said, my first guest is such an incredible, perfect first guest to have in this series. His name is Paul Austin. He's an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator. He has founded two companies in the emergent psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. Within Third Wave, Paul leads his team in building an educational platform to ensure psychedelic substances become responsibly integrated into our metamodern cultural framework. And Synthesis is a psilocybin retreat experience that takes place in Amsterdam and is completely legal. Paul is very known in this space. He is a go-to person to speak about microdosing and doing it safely and legally. And in this conversation, we dive into how he got to where he is today, his early psychedelic experiences, his upbringing, how he became a digital nomad in his 20s and traveled all over the world. We discuss what happens in altered states of consciousness and during psychedelic experiences, the skill of dropping into your intuition, and how there's nothing more honest in spiritual practice than creation. We talk about safe microdosing experiences and safe psychedelic experiences through having the right set and setting. We get into all of that. We discuss the importance of integration and community, the stigma that is attached to psychedelics and how to deal with it. One of my personal takeaways from this conversation is this idea of microdosing not to dissociate from your experience in this human body, but rather than to embody it deeper and more meaningfully. At least that's been my experience with intentional, safe psychedelics. Nothing that you will hear in this episode or in the series is medical advice, so please be responsible for your own decisions. The official disclaimer is in the show notes on WokenWire.com. This is for information purposes only. And with that, I'm also excited to share that Paul runs these six-week microdosing experience. It's a group program where you learn how to get back into your flow, process difficult emotions, reconnect to your purpose, and be present in a more expanded state of consciousness. The third wave has an extensive network of researchers, therapists, coaches, and they are very science-based. 
If this speaks to you, this experience starts October 4th, 2020. There will be other ones coming up. Either way, if you feel called to it, just click the link in the show notes on WokenWire.com to check it out and see if it speaks to you. And if you are brand new to this topic, what I recommend is that you check out the documentary The Spirit Molecule. It was really mind-blowing and something that changed my life and opened my mind to a brand new possibility. And also check out Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which goes into the history of drugs and psychedelics, his own personal life-changing experience with it, and current science research and the impacts of psychedelic therapy on the world. Here's my guest, Paul Austin. All right, Paul Austin, I've been hearing about you and your work for a long, long time. And then synchronistically, I met you in person at a cacao ceremony at the assemblage. Do you remember that? With Florencia, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and it feels like, I don't know if we met before that or if it was just that we had exchanged emails. Maybe it was just that we had exchanged emails and talked a little bit. And then we, yeah, Florencia led those beautiful cacao ceremonies with music and up at the assemblage. And this is, of course, pre-COVID. And this is maybe about a year, year and a half ago. So it's good to finally be able to sit down and chat with you about microdosing and psilocybin and you know healing and plant medicines and all these really fun, interesting, important things in, in today's day and age. And how it all fits into entrepreneurship as well, because I've listened to your podcast, The Third Wave, and I've attended some of your events where you create such a powerful space for entrepreneurs of this new paradigm to share their experiences with plant medicine and how it has allowed them to be more whole and connected and grounded in their purpose so that then that translates into more wholesome business for all. So let's just get straight to it. My first question to you is, what is your personal experience with expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship? You know, growing up, I... I'm a very, I would not say hard-headed or stubborn. I am, I am very hard-headed and stubborn. But in terms of like my relationship to mystical experiences or out-of-body experiences or sort of anything like that, like zero. Had none of it growing up. Where did you grow up? West Michigan. So in a pretty, pretty like conservative, not conservative home, like but a very traditional church every Sunday, Protestant. So I always had like a faith background, but never had any sort of faith or experiences of of expanded consciousness until obviously you know substances like cannabis and then LSD came into the picture and because i was always a little more stubborn and unconventional you know wanting to pursue my own path and do my own thing and be disobedient i had a tendency to basically try things that were a little unusual and um when i was 19 I had recently, I would say, transitioned into a more sort of atheist perspective. So, you know, when I was 17 or 18, end of high school, was starting to doubt a lot of the sort of traditional faith structure, started to read Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and thought, oh, atheism has a lot of interesting answers. And then I started to work with psychedelics and that expanded state really 
plug me into, oh, there's much more than traditional religion. There's much more than just atheism. There's, there's a sense of divine connection that we have when we go through with these beautiful experiences with LSD or psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca or even something like ketamine at times can engender these experiences. So when I had those early experiences when I was 19 or 20 with LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, sometimes in basements, sometimes in the woods, at the beach with friends, often hiking, you know, with just a friend or two, they were very insightful, highly reflective. And one thing that would always come up in those experiences was how important it felt to create my own path and my own life. So I grew up in, you know, a really healthy loving family, had like my whole life in front of me. Essentially, I was in college. I was 19, 20, 21, knew that I'd be coming out of college with very little student debt, uh, wanted to spend the majority of my 20s exploring and expanding, traveling, taking risks. You know, I had a sense that there was no better time than these 10 years to really fail and make mistakes and just sort of grow and expand. And and psychedelics helped me to feel safe in pursuing that. They helped to give me confidence and courage in that pursuit. And I think more than anything, they helped me to worry less about ego sort of based outcomes like status or a car or salary or titles or anything like that. And help me to recognize the importance of focusing on the journey and the process of becoming is a good way to put it. And so through those early psychedelic experiences, you know, I'm like, this is around the same time that digital nomadism became a thing. People were reading Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. It was becoming easier and easier to travel, to live abroad, to start your own business online. And so I just made the choice that, hey, I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to start a remote business. And then with the combination of living abroad and starting a remote business, I had a sense that it would create the space for me to live wherever I wanted and pursue whatever work, whatever line of work that I wanted to pursue. And at the core of all of this was a sense of freedom and a sense of choice and a sense of agency, right? Because oftentimes through expanded states of consciousness, we come to realize that we ultimately have a choice about our path and our destiny, that we can choose to live in a certain place or we can choose to pursue a certain profession or we can choose to love someone and that that choice is constant. Now, of course, what we also realize from extended, expanded states of consciousness is that we really don't have any choice. And that's sort of the paradox that is that is integral to life is both we have choice and we don't. But that's sort of another conversation, another sidetrack. So I think the the thing for me that really tied together expanded states of consciousness and entrepreneurship are through expanded states of consciousness, we come to feel and recognize what it means to be free. And the best way to sort of replicate that state of feeling over a long period of time is by pursuing a path of entrepreneurship. Because for the vast majority of us, our sort of most common form of modern day slavery is a corporate job or the golden handcuffs or something along those lines. And the only way to sort of break out of that matrix or break out of that dynamic is to pursue a path that's authentic and that allows you to continue to explore and develop 
as a, as a human being. So where has that led you? Where are you at in your entrepreneurial journey? Do you still resonate with the idea of being a digital nomad or are you more drawn to having a home? And what are the offerings behind your business? Yeah. So, I mean, the entrepreneurial journey itself has been really, really fascinating. So I was 21 when I graduated from college. I moved abroad and lived in Turkey for a year where I taught English. I taught a standardized test called the TOEFL to non-native English speakers so they could... Oh, we've taken that. Oh, you have. Yeah. So they could go to Harvard or go to the States or whatever. So I taught the TOEFL in particular, like the speaking and writing section. And then in my free time when I was living in Turkey, because I had a lot of free time, I was watching TED Talks and reading books and I started my own blog and just starting to like try things, like doing a lot of copywriting, like trying to learn what it meant to to sell and market and and all that sort of stuff. And then left Turkey, traveled quite a bit for about a year through Europe and Morocco and Turkey and and did a road trip across the United States and worked a little bit here and there, but not a ton. And then decided, hey, like I really want to start my own website, my own business. So what I did is I took that skill that I had learned in teaching English in Turkey, and I basically started my first online business about it. It was like a, a coaching business for the TOEFL, where I trained students how to get a 26 on the TOEFL speaking section. And built like a small little business there while I was living in Chiang Mai in Thailand, moved from Chiang Mai to Budapest, and then moved to Lisbon. It was sort of like, you know, gallivanting and globe trotting through a number of form places. Now, concurrent to this first coaching business that I started, psychedelics started to pick up more and more sort of attention. So in 2015, Tim Ferriss started publishing several podcasts about psychedelics, including one with Dr. Jim Fadiman, who wrote a book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and is sort of like an OG from the second wave of psychedelics back in the 60s, like the first time that Jim Fadiman ever did a psychedelic was with Ram Das, whose name was Richard Alpert at that time in Paris in like 1962, right? So Jim is an OG, published a book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide in 2011, was on the Tim Ferriss podcast and talked about this concept of microdosing. I heard that podcast, listened to it because I had some previous experience with LSD and mushrooms, thought it'd be really cool to try this, tried it, had a very impactful experience with microdosing. And then as one does, I had that great experience and went, okay, well, now how do I like... Wait, wait, hold on. Let's pause there. What does that mean? A very impactful experience. What was it like and what impact did it actually have? So when I first started working with psychedelics when I was 19, 20, I think one of the, one of the observations was that for the week or two weeks after the psychedelic experience, I would have this feeling of of afterglow where I made better decisions and choices about what I ate and how I exercised. I was more open and loving and connected with the people in my life. It was, you know, I started to to meditate more consistently. There were just these habits of general self-care and it just felt really easy in the afterglow of a psychedelic experience. And then after a week or two weeks, that afterglow would more or less dissipate. And, you know, I'd kind of go back to what I thought was normal functioning reality. So when I heard about microdosing, I was like, well, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity to elongate that afterglow period, to extend it from being maybe one to two weeks to a month or two months or three months. And so I tried microdosing. I microdosed with LSD for about, it was twice a week. 
that I did it. And I had two core intentions at that time. The first intention was to minimize resistance to creative work, uh, to make it easier in the morning to drop into a flow state. As anyone who does any sort of creative work can attest to, oftentimes the biggest blocker is ourselves and sort of it's the 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 what I, what, what's called the referential self. And so when you can quiet the referential self and just be totally in that flow state, it's much easier to create because you're not worried about the outcome, how it looks. You're just creating. And when microdosing, it makes it much easier to drop into that creative self out of the referential self. So that was the first intention was to spend more time in flow, to make it easier to write, to create, to develop ideas. And so I just noticed that through microdosing, I was a fucking idea generating monster. Like it was just so easy to write, to come up with new concepts, to brainstorm, almost to the point where it became actually a little ungrounding, which I think is something we can go into a little bit about what's the calibration when it comes to microdosing? What's that balance between, like, what's the sweet spot when it comes to psychedelic use? Because you can go too far into it. And I've, I've experienced those. Right. And what you're describing, it sounds like Bradley Cooper and Limitless. You know, it makes me wonder, wait, is it this magic pill or... There must be more to the story. Well, and then I eventually like dipped into mania and burned out and, you know, you can kind of like go overboard with it. So and, and got to learn all of this firsthand, which was super fascinating. The other thing which I've struggled with in the past is just social anxiety. So oftentimes, like I would cover that up most commonly with alcohol. And what I started to do is instead of drinking alcohol and going out, I would still go to like the bar or hang out with friends but I would microdose instead. And I just noticed it made it easier to connect. It made it easier to be present with people. I had less anxiety when I was with others. Uh, so those are really the two, I would say, core impacts of microdosing, easier access to flow, and then less social anxiety. What about the spiritual aspect of it? Because I've heard it on your podcast through other entrepreneurs sharing their stories. And also in my own experience, I find that in my personal experience with psychedelics, it drops me, it drops away whatever is not true and not in alignment. And it connects me straight to the core of my being and the consciousness that I am meant to channel into the world. So what is your experience with the spiritual track of things? So usually what I tie that back to is a sense of mindfulness and presence. I know that's sort of reducing obviously what spirituality is but the the way that i try to sort of get a grip on that or an understanding of it is what does it mean to be present to our intuition what does it mean to be able to drop in and to really listen to a, how our body feels to what is going on and what's beautiful about both microdoses and higher doses is in working with them we essentially cultivate the skill of dropping more and more and more into our intuition so what I noticed is that intuitive self, which is often so distracted by the mind and often often so distracted by things that are going on externally, when combining microdosing with a meditative practice or with something like yoga or breath work, it just made it much easier to quiet the chatter and to drop into that state of full embodiment. And then when you're in that state of full embodiment, when there's no sort of disconnection between the mind and the body, if you will then the creative process is like there's so much more lubrication for the creative process because you're just channeling. 
right? You're in that intuitive self. And that intuitive self is just a matter. It's it's sort of like uh, like you're listening and you're you're creating and you're listening and you're creating and you're listening and you're creating. And for me, there is there's nothing more honest as a spiritual practice than creation, right? So so I think oftentimes w- with spirituality we get stuck in what's a good way to put this? Like with spirituality, we get stuck in, in other worlds, so to say, like sometimes I see spirituality as a path towards disassociation from reality as it is. And the way that I've always perceived psychedelic substances and microdosing is a way to drop deeper into the truth of objective reality, regardless of whether it's good or bad, regardless of whether it's loving and open or not so loving and open, whether there's shadow elements that we have. And when we can drop into the truth of objective reality, then it becomes so much easier to create and manifest because we're creating from a place of of honesty and integrity rather than a, from a place of disassociation. Because when we create from a place of disassociation, all it does is lead us further and further and further away from our quote unquote true path whatever that might be. Yes, I hear what you're saying. And in my experience, I've been interviewed so many times where I talk about intuition and it's a big part of my work, helping others connect with their intuition. And the more I be with that thought of intuition, I realize intuition is not, it's its more like a pathway. It's a tool to connect to being a channel. Intuition on its own means nothing. It's more like a road, like a doorway into being connected to the source in my experience. Right. And that's oftentimes what we realize through psychedelic experiences, especially high doses, is that that source like essentially is the divinity in all of us. Right. And and that's why like like we hear about the muse, right? We just need to get in touch with our muse and, and, and sort of understand the muse. And the muse is really just the the God in, inside of us. It's the higher self inside of us. And, and when we can tap into that, and when we have a cultivated relationship with that, then the creative process is so much more authentic. It's so much more in line with who we actually are. And there's so much less resistance to the creative process itself. So do psychedelics work this way for everyone from what you have observed and taught? Well, one of the very special things about psychedelics is is that they're non-specific amplifiers. So in other words, there's no inherent morals or values in psychedelics. Sometimes when people talk about mushrooms, they'll talk about the fungi intelligence, or when they talk about ayahuasca, they'll talk about the grandmother, or when they talk about some of these other substances, you know, like they say, oh, it has this spirit or it has this thing to it. And depending on the set and setting, that might be true. But oftentimes, it's just sort of playing with our neurotransmitters and our sense of self in really interesting ways. So when it comes to the question of, is this right for everyone? I think the first response is very sort of basic and medical, which is if you have a predisposition to schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder, to be very, very careful with psychedelic substances. I think that's the first sort of caveat. But for anyone who doesn't have those conditions, I would say the vast, vast majority of people will find some sort of benefit from working with psychedelic substances. Now, for a lot of people, that just might be at the microdose level. 
for others that could be at the high dose level. And there are a few reasons for this. Um, the first reason is, is like just all of the impacts and effects that it has on mental health. So we're now seeing you know, research from institutions like Johns Hopkins and NYU and Imperial College and UC Berkeley. And like, there's so many more now than there were even just a year ago. So I can't even name all of them at this point. But showing the efficacy of psychedelics to treat depression, to treat addiction, to treat alcoholism, end of life anxiety. And the core reason for that is because psychedelics can facilitate what is called a mystical experience on demand. And without going into too much detail, a mystical experience is essentially a feeling of being connected to God. It's this feeling of deep interconnection, a feeling of deep peace and equanimity, a feeling of you know something that is totally ineffable, that can't be explained, that's often non-dual, that's outside of sort of this, this dualistic existence. And from research that was done with psychedelics, we know that it can almost on demand facilitate a mystical experience for, I think, 80% of people. So as long as the set and setting is curated, as long as the container is safe, right? There's no such thing as a good or bad psychedelic experience. There are safe and unsafe psychedelic experiences. And the reason for that is because for psychedelics to have the benefits and the impact that have been so widely talked about these last couple of years, it's so, so, so critical to be able to surrender to the experience. And the only way that we can really surrender is if we feel safe within that container. So I think there, there's a few there's a few things in there, right? Like if you have a predisposition to certain clinical conditions, be very like wary of working with psychedelic substances. If you're struggling with, you know, like depression or addiction or anxiety, it could be very useful for that. And if you're going to work with psychedelics, pay close attention to your set and setting, which is essentially your mindset going into the experience, and then the environment in which you're taking the actual substance. Can you give us an example of a safe set and setting? So, oh, this is fun because this sort of brings us back to the entrepreneurial journey. So in 2015, I started Third Wave, uh, which is the thirdwave.co. And that's like an educational platform on microdosing and psychedelics. That basically led to starting a psilocybin retreat center in, in the Netherlands called Synthesis. And so at Synthesis, what we did is we curated an environment for guests who would fly in from all over the world to undergo a psychedelic experience. And we essentially would lead them through a three-day experience. They would fly in on day one. Day one was about preparation they would have a 30-minute conversation with one of our coaches or guides or facilitators. You know, and previous to this, you know, flying to Amsterdam and coming in for the retreat, we sent them some prompts to journal about, some ways to prepare, you know, like so there was some preparatory material before. But day one, connect with the other participants, journal a little bit, talk with the facilitators. Day two is the actual experience itself. On day two, what we had is we just had like you know, we had this beautiful setup in an old church that was about 40 minutes west of Amsterdam. We had 15 mattresses on the floor that were that were in a circle. Everyone had an eye shade, a pillow to lay down on. 
we gave them the truffles and also something to help with the nausea. We played beautiful, relaxing music in the background that would help guide them through the experience. And then they would go through the experience. And then while they're in the experience, you know, we would have two main facilitators and three other helpers around. So about five people in total helping 15 people go through an experience. And then the experience finishes. We have a closing circle. We talk about it. We integrate it. Everyone goes to sleep. The next day we get up and we start to integrate the experience. We talk about it. We have a group sharing. We do some one-on-one conversations. And oftentimes because these experiences can be so significant, there's a lot of material from the subconscious and unconscious that will come up during these experiences that needs to be processed. So that integration period is so, so, so key to the long-term efficacy of the psychedelic experience. There are a lot of people who will just keep doing ayahuasca, who will keep doing psychedelics, who will keep doing all these things. And I'm sure some of your listeners have met these people before. You'll, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I've been doing psychedelics for 15 years. And you'll be like, well, (laughs) what have you actually been doing? Because it doesn't seem like much has actually changed. So a key, key element of the healing process, of that process of becoming whole, is after you have these insights and this awareness, how do you then integrate that back into this matrixy reality? And unfortunately, because we're still in the sort of set and setting of culture and society as it is, you know, with everything that's going on with COVID and climate change, and there's a lot of external stuff, the container of our culture itself is toxic still. I think it's getting better and we'll get even healthier as psychedelics become medically available and more and more people start working with them. But at this point in time, the set and setting of our culture is toxic itself. And that can make the integration process quite difficult. And so that's why it's so important that in the integration process, not only do you have a therapist or a coach or a guide who can continue to support you after a psychedelic experience, but that you also have community and that you have people who are there with you going basically like like people to talk with and connect with and support you through that process, right? This is why a place like the assemblage was so beautiful and great because essentially it was a co-working space built around these concepts and ideals that were downloaded from ayahuasca itself. So I think I think that's really the true opportunity for integration in psychedelics is after we come out of these experiences, both individually and, co- and collectively, how can psychedelic medicines inform the new systems and culture and society that we want to create so that we can basically evolve as a, as a human species? Oh, I can't wait for the laws to change. There's so many fantastic documentaries that show the scientific positive results of people using these substances in safe ways and... I personally just can't wait for it to change. But the two things that I want to get into with you, Paul, is number one, talk a little bit about the stigma in society. Even from my personal experience growing up in Russia, anytime I would hear about mushrooms or or drugs of any sort, there was sort of like... um, I would shut myself off from it. I wouldn't even consider it because it was so there was so much stigma around it that I didn't even have access to any information that there could be some positive benefit 
to taking it. And probably, and not probably, for sure, it's for the best. And I believe divine timing. And my psyche probably would not have been prepared to do it. And the set and setting would not have been right if I was exposed to these substances as a teenager. But I think for most people, like you said, just in culture in general, in this Western culture, there's so much stigma around every, anything and everything that can be categorized as drugs. So how do you see it changing and how do you have conversations with people who perhaps are from different cultures or generations where drugs are just bad and that's it, end of conversation? Yeah, that's a really great question. This is something when we started Third Way back in 2015, I spent a lot of time and energy focused on because five years ago, there was so much more stigma than there is today. Thankfully, there's been a ton that's changed in terms of clinical trials and the decriminalization of these substances and, you know, influencers like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and, you know, many, many others who are openly talking about their own experiences and interviewing people on their shows who are talking about their experiences. So I, I, I first want to say that there's so much that has changed in these last five years. With that being said, there's definitely still quite a bit of stigma around these substances. And I think, you know, the, the reason for that is, 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 is twofold. One is psychedelics, unfortunately, get looped in with all the other sort of quote unquote drugs, right? So in the past, and again, this is changing significantly now, particularly because of cannabis, but in the past, there were your legal drugs, which were tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine. And there were the illegal drugs, which was pretty much everything else. But most notably, cannabis, psychedelics, cocaine, heroin, MDMA, certain amphetamines, certain methamphetamines, you know, depending on if they were FDA approved or not, because Adderall and Ritalin and some of these are also, you know, legal drugs. So this is sort of the distinction that we had about what were good drugs and what were bad drugs. And what's so interesting is that distinction is informed by the process of industrialization. So the reason tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine are culturally accepted substances is because those three drugs in particular were central to economic development in the industrial period. So from, I would say, the mid-17th century up until the mid-20th century, uh, 1960 or so. And then what happened is in 1960, sort of that's when the second wave of psychedelics is what I call it. That's when, you know, consciousness really first started to open up culturally. That's, you know, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and, you know, the whole 60s with the counterculture was the first time that we were exposed to these things. And from that grew the computer revolution and grew smartphones and iPhones and basically creating technology that allowed us to be much more interconnected. And so now what we're going through is we're going through this process and, and, and this sort of like meta trend where we're going from industrialization and the industrial age to the information age. And so the drugs that will be most relevant in the information age, psychedelics, cannabis, MDMA, a few other ones as well, the ones that will be most commonly used are actually much different than the ones that were used in the industrial age. Because the ones that were best in the industrial age were things that helped you to be productive, like caffeine and tobacco, and then drugs that helped you to come down from that productivity, which was alcohol. So you had your uppers and you had your downers. Pretty basic, pretty straightforward. What's happening now with substances like cannabis and psychedelics is all of a sudden creativity, back to creativity. Creativity is the most valuable skill that you can have in today's working world, in today's business world. And that's because 
automation and AI and general technology is taking care of a lot of those tasks that we used to be do before. So instead of having to worry about, you know, data crunching and putting numbers in and filling out spreadsheets and, you know, moving physical products, like we have robots and computers to take care of all that stuff. So all of a sudden, all these human resources are freed up. And then when we start to throw in microdosing and cannabis and other psychedelics in there, then these are phenomenal tools to help us to be more creative, to have you know, more divergent thinking, to come up with new ideas, to try new things, to be more resilient, to be more adaptable. And so that's why we're starting to see from a meta trend level, the stigma start to be sort of less and less and less around these substances. And I think the other thing within that is we're just having more scientific research. So prior to this, people thought psychedelics were addictive. They thought they were harmful. They thought they you know, did bad things to the brain and the body. And now what we're learning, really, we've known this since the 60s. But what we're relearning is these are anti-addictive substances. Um, they're incredibly healthy and beneficial if used in the correct set and setting, somewhere that's safe, somewhere you can trust and surrender. And that they have a rich, rich history of human use. You know, people have been working with ayahuasca and mushrooms for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's actually very non-normative in the scope of human history to prohibit these substances. In all cultures across the world, there's always been a space, a container to use these within a ritualistic framework. And it's actually only within the past 50 to 60 years that these have been explicitly banned and illegal, largely because of the United States and its more or less draconian drug laws that were exported to the rest of the world. Before we speak about microdosing, will you just briefly explain a little bit about drugs versus psychedelics? So the way, kind of the way that I look at it is we have, right, drugs and medicines are basically on a continuum. So I wouldn't say it's black and white. These are drugs and these are medicines, right? Some drugs are medicines. But a drug is something that you take, that you imbibe, that creates a significant, I would say, change or difference in your perception of external reality. So psychedelics are drugs. Pharmaceuticals are drugs. Heroin is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. And depending on how you use all of these drugs, they can be medicinal. Right. So opium is a medicine in certain parts of the world and has been a medicine for thousands and thousands of years. Alcohol is used in tinctures. Right. And it can be a medicine. So I think the distinction between medicines and drugs is more about the amount and the intention rather than just the substance itself. With that being said, I think there are, quote unquote, better drugs and less better drugs. And that, that, again, is dependent on the intention as to why you're using it. If you need something for pain, cannabis is really good for that, better than fentanyl, because fentanyl is potentially very destructive and very addictive. Cannabis is still addictive, but also really good at helping with long-term pain. If you're looking at healing from depression, mushrooms are probably best for that. You know, Prozac, we thought was, but actually Prozac is very addictive. And now that we've seen the long longitudinal research, we know that Prozac is no more effective than a placebo at treating depression. So when it comes to depression, mushrooms. When it comes to PTSD, MDMA, right? 
So, so I think a lot of the distinction between drugs and medicine and what is not, you know, it has a lot to do with set and setting. It has a lot to do with intention. It has a lot to do with why you're interested in using that. And that's sort of where the line is between uh, those two words, if you will. It's such a loaded topic. There is so mm-hmm. much to discuss. And, you know, my intention is to make it as actionable for listeners so that there's both understanding of the broader topic, which we have covered by talking about the stigma, but also, you know, how does it actually apply to your life if you're someone who is drawn to experience this? So that leads me to microdosing. And when you talked about synthesis and the way that those experiences happen in the Netherlands, you talked about how there's preparation, there's the experience, there's integration. When it comes to microdosing, is there some sort of container of intentionality and sacredness that you recommend? Or, And I know you teach a course on that, so let's just jump into yeah. all of that. Yeah, that's a great question. So what sort of ritual do we bring to the microdosing experience? What intention do we bring to the microdosing experience? And what experience? is microdosing? And what is microdosing? That's probably the best place to start. What is microdosing? So the concept of microdosing is not so much about just taking a very small amount of a psychedelic, but microdosing is really the the practice of a protocol. And it's the kind of how it was traditionally rolled out by Jim Fadiman was take a tenth of a regular dose, whether LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, and do it two times per week for a period of five weeks was Jim Fadiman's initial recommendation. After that time, that, that five weeks, you've done it twice a week, take a week or two off, evaluate how your baseline has changed. And then if you feel like you want to start doing it again, then start to do it again. And so what that means in terms of the actual level for LSD, that could be anywhere from five to 20 micrograms of LSD. For psilocybin mushrooms, that could be anywhere from 0.1 to 0.3 grams of psilocybin mushrooms. So that's sort of like the baseline. And then there's you can get into a lot more depth. Like in our course, we talk about what's the difference in two times a week versus three times a week versus four times a week. What if you've already been doing it two times a week and you want to switch to to the occasional dose, blah, 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 blah. Like, But the first step is twice a week for about a month and see how that feels. And then within that process, sort of like what we were talking about earlier, microdosing just slightly amplifies everything that's going on already. So I really look at microdosing like I would having a meditation practice where you're not as focused on, do I immediately feel better the day that I'm microdosing? It's more about how does the trajectory of my existence and my sense of self change from day one to day 30 or day one to day 60 or day one to day 90, depending on how long a person chooses to microdose. And so less of a granular focus on, oh, I feel happier today or I feel more energetic today or I feel like it's easier to be in flow today. Those things will be true and also honor and pay attention to, oh man, over the last month, like I've been way more open and connected with my tribe and community or man, way over the last month, I've like landed a few new business deals because I was able to be more proactive and really speak my truth as I needed to speak my truth, right? So there's sort of these trends that we can see develop. And that's a big part of the ritual of microdosing is just turning our awareness to an intention and then realizing that microdosing as an act will amplify that intention to make it much easier to manifest what it is that we wish to manifest. 
And the reason for that is just like meditation helps to facilitate more gray matter in the brain, right? So if you meditate every day for six weeks, that will improve your neuroplasticity significantly where they've shown with brain scans that you'll have more gray matter. Microdosing does the same thing. Microdosing makes you more adaptable. So that way, as you're infusing these new habits and new behaviors and new ways of being into your life, it helps them to stick and integrate over the long term. And so that's another key part of microdosing is that microdosing is not a magic pill, so to say. It's not like a Prozac or a Zoloft or a lithium or any of these sort of conventional psychiatric medications, which are just take this every day and you'll feel better. Microdosing is an active process. It's saying do this twice a week, but as you're doing this, also like be proactive. Start meditating consistently. Go to yoga more often. Pay more attention to how you're treating yourself. Pay more attention to what you're putting in your body. That's a super important part of the ritual and the sacredness of microdosing. And then when it comes to the day itself, right? Like if you have a microdosing day, I think that's a fantastic opportunity to meditate before, to journal a little bit before. Some people like to set intention into the medicine. I'm not quite, I don't quite go there, but I know people do that. So I think just having a level of intentionality on your microdosing day is is super important. It's really, really important to to bring that honor and awareness to that healing and sacred space. I love that idea. I'm all about bringing ritual into everyday moments, whether that's my own cacao ceremony or going to a sauna and just processing a big project I just completed. And I love this invitation to have this extra meditative awareness and intentionality on days when you microdose. And with that, what happens in your microdosing program? Because I would think that when it's done in a group like this, and it's guided in a specific time container, it's amplified even more. Is that your experience? Yeah. So, you know, for a few years, we just had like, a course that we that we basically our own protocol that we guided people through where it's like this is how you microdose but these are all the other things to be mindful of as you're microdosing journaling and diet and sleep and exercise and meditation breath work intention how it combines with high doses and then what we've rolled out recently is something called the microdosing experience program because we noticed that a lot of people are microdosing but there's not like the level of healing and transformation is so dependent on the container that's created. So if you enter a container for your microdosing experience and you have guidance and you have coaching and you have support from community and you have like, I compare it to like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, right? Everyone needs an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Everyone needs someone who's guiding us on our own hero's journey, who's guiding us down the path of who we're becoming. And so if you have people who walked that path before who can guide you through that container, then it just dramatically increases the likelihood of a tangibly impactful experience. Because these substances are still illegal, because there is quite a bit of risk associated with them, I think it's really, really critical that if someone is going to do this, that they do it with support, that they do it with a community, that they do it you know, in a way that ensures that it's as, as successful as possible. Mm. So where can people learn more about that? So when it comes to our programs, the thirdwave.co is our website. You know, we have really three main programs that we're guiding people through when it comes to microdosing. One is just a course that you can purchase that will be self-guided. 
Another one is microdosing coaching, which is just three one-on-one calls with one of our coaches. And then the last one is the microdosing experience, which is a six-week uh, course, live group calls, a private you know, Slack forum, weekly emails. We have master classes from medical doctors and executive coaches and anyone who really wants to amplify and accelerate their path of development and awareness. It feels like this container that we've created is, is a perfect opportunity to do that. So I would say to find out more information, the thirdwave.co is the best place to go. And then, you know, you, people can sort of dive in from there about whatever whatever feels best. I'll have all the links in the show notes on WokenWire.com. And Paul, we're almost at time here. And in this last minute, I'm called to ask you if there is something that you're called to share that I didn't ask you about. I think that the best place to leave this is just the remembrance that these medicines are sacred, that they can't be commodified or commercialized, and that the intent of working with psychedelic medicine is to become our own healer and to tap into our deepest wellspring of power so that we feel like we have agency and choice and that we can create our existence as we wish to create it. And I feel like that's a really good place to end this conversation about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. I love it. Mic drop. This is so good, Paul. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. There is nothing more honest and spiritual practice than creation. I love that takeaway from my conversation with Paul and If it spoke to you and you want to experience his work yourself, check out the microdosing experience. It starts on October 4th, 2020, but there will be other programs too if you're listening to it past this date. And it's a six-week group coaching program for personal, professional, and spiritual growth that starts with preparation followed by a guided breathwork ceremony and then integration of your breakthrough ceremony with microdosing, coaching guidance, and community support. You can check out all the details on thethirdwave.co. If you use the code WOKE, you will get 20% off the microdosing experience. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes and share it with a friend who you think could benefit from the message. Find all the show notes and all the resources on WokenWired.com and say hello on Instagram. Find me at Woke and Wired. Stay woke, stay wired, and take three deep breaths right now.